2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look to our hospitals to save us when we are very sick. But as Ed Yong writes in his latest piece for The Atlantic, not even the best prepared hospital can compensate for an unchecked pandemic. And that is exactly what we're in. We'll learn what frontline workers and heads of hospitals across the U.S. told Yong recently about what they're facing, as cases climb past 12 million, and the nation remains without a unified strategy for addressing them. Forum is next. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The national statistics are grim. More than 12 million coronavirus cases, more than a quarter million people dead. Now we're approaching the unthinkable statistic of 200,000 new cases a day. Even here in California, according to an LA Times analysis, average daily case numbers have tripled just in the last month. Ed Yong, science writer for The Atlantic, has written extensively about the pandemic this year. And today he joins us to talk about what some of the nation's best prepared hospitals are now facing and why so many frontline health workers say they're at a breaking point. Welcome back to Forum, Ed Yong.
3: Hi, thanks for having me again.
2: You know, with virus spread out of control across the country, you could have focused on any number of hospitals, but you chose the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha for your latest piece. Tell us why.
3: Because um, arguably no hospital in America has been better prepared for a pandemic. And I guess that might surprise people who, who might think that such a hospital would be in a place like New York or a big city like Boston or Chicago. But It's in Omaha. And the reason for that is that that specific hospital has been prepping for emerging infectious diseases since the first SARS virus emerged in 2003. They have some of the leading infectious disease experts in the world. They have some of the best facilities. They were some of the folks who took airlifted Ebola passengers in 2014. They have drilled and trained extensively. They have come up with super detailed pandemic plans of what to do in the event of an event much like this one. Um, so, you know, more than any other institution, they both anticipated this kind of catastrophe, and they had taken steps to prepare for it. And so, yet,
2: yes, sorry, go right, that's exactly the next point is, given all of that, what have you learned is happening there now?
3: Things are looking really bleak. Um, The hospital has had to um, create 10 COVID units, each one of them taking up an entire hospital floor. One of those units is only for people to go and die because they can't be saved. Mm. The uh, workers, the nurses and doctors are absolutely stretched thin. Um, They are tired. Um, One nurse said to me that she normally works in oncology, so death is no stranger to her but she can barely cope. She can barely comprehend the amount of death that she's seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, The hospital has had to postpone elective surgeries. Um, A lot of patients who would otherwise be getting medical care right now are not getting that care. A lot of patients who have been admitted to the hospital, not just with COVID, but with other things like strokes and heart conditions, just aren't getting the level of care that they normally would, and not because the doctors are inattentive, but because they are completely swamped with COVID-19 cases. Um, You know, these are people who, as I said, have trained. They are not given to exaggeration. They are resilient. They are collected people. And they are saying things to me like, we are on an absolutely catastrophic path that we are seeing a system breaking in front of us. They are scared, they are tired, and they know that the worst is yet to come.
2: So what does it tell you, Ed Young, if UNMC, of all hospitals is at this point, about what other hospitals are facing? I mean, is their experience basically generalizable, I guess, given the fact that we know that Nebraska is situated in a state with no mask mandate, it's surrounded by other states that have been slow to act. So how unique is this experience to UNMC in your reporting?
3: Uh, it's not unique at all. Um, certainly, there's variation across the country. So hospitals in the northeast, for example, in places like New York and, and Rhode Island and Pennsylvania are seeing increases in COVID. They are also tired. They are also exhausted. But. Um, they're not quite in as bad of a situation, but it's bad everywhere, and it's especially bad in places in the Midwest. So, um, before writing about uh, UNMC in Nebraska, uh, I wrote another piece about hospital about healthcare workers and hospitals being exhausted. Um, one of the people I spoke to there works in Iowa, who told me that Iowa is now out of staffed beds. That means that there there's just no more space um, for people who are sick. Um, and certainly no space that actually has nurses and doctors who can care for those people. Those um, work, those healthcare workers in Iowa also sounded um, a massive blaring alarm about the conditions that they're seeing. And you can look at any number of news stories that have um, interviewed um, healthcare workers in North Dakota, in South Dakota, in uh, Wisconsin, throughout the Midwest. The problem, one of the problems with this current surge is that it has hit the entire country. So the first one hit the Northeast. The second one focused on the South. This one is everywhere. All of the US is on fire right now with COVID cases. And that means that hospitals that once were able to get reinforcements from other parts of the country now cannot. Where are those reinforcements coming from? Because everyone is swamped. And Mm -hmm. that's adding to the, the incredible burdens on healthcare workers right now.
2: We're talking about the latest coronavirus surge with Ed Yong of The Atlantic. And, you know, Ed, yours, your pieces, the most recent ones, it's the most detail I've read so far about what actually happens in an intensive care unit for a patient mm-hmm. with a severe case of COVID-19. Can you describe just how much work is required?
3: Yeah, so that patient will likely be intubated. That means they'll have a long tube going down their throat that's providing them with oxygen because the virus is... um Uh, is assaulting their lungs. That patient will probably also have anywhere between 8 to 12 tubes, many of them large, going directly into their heart and um, into other blood vessels, delivering them um, sedatives, pain medications, antibiotics. None of those are drugs for treating the actual COVID. That's just to keep them alive. Those drugs might have to be titrated. That means that the doses might have to be adjusted on a minute-to-minute basis by a nurse that has to keep track of all of that. That patient will probably have this bank of monitors that control the amounts of medications they're getting. We know that some COVID patients do better when they're put on their front. That's called proning. Now, proning doesn't just mean you take a patient and you flip them. That patient, remember, has... Uh, you know, maybe a dozen tubes coming out of them and a t- and one tube that's going into their airways that is providing them with life-saving oxygen. So to turn that patient onto their side, which needs to happen once a day, and then they need to be flipped back to, you need a team of maybe six and seven doctors and nurses to burrito them up in some kind of wrapping, flip them over, and at least one person is to make sure that all of the those tubes don't pop out. It's called intensive care for a reason. Um, you know, uh, typically one ICU nurse can take look after two patients, and COVID patients are so, so sick and much sicker than the typical ICU patient that often one nurse has to devote um, their entire attention to one patient. And that patient, if they have COVID, is going to be in the ICU for three times as long as your typical patient. So you're halving the amount of patients that your ICU nurses can look after, and you're tripling the amount of time those patients spend in the ICU. It's no wonder that hospitals and um, healthcare workers are so stretched right now.
2: One of the things, especially early on in the pandemic, we were seeing in other countries just the tragic rationing of care that was having to happen. Are you hearing about examples of that now?
3: I think we're ra- we're rapidly approaching that point. And even if we don't, if we, even if we're not at that point yet, there's already some of that that is happening, right? Because doctors and nurses are really stretched. They already have to make decisions about how much attention to pay to different people. So at UNMC, the Nebraska hospital I told you was best prepared. One of the nurses there told me that there are some days when they look at the total number of patients in the morning and the nurses they have, and they know that they are down between 45 and 60 nurses. That's ridiculous. I had to triple check that number with her because it just didn't sound right. How can the hospital be down 45 to 60 nurses? So even if they're not having yet to say, we literally cannot treat this patient, they are having to stretch themselves and they are having to reduce the amount of attention and care that they would give any one patient and we will get to that point i think it's a will rather than an if where doctors will have to make really hard decisions about who to put on a ventilator who to put on dialysis who to who they can treat and who simply will not have space or healthcare workers to look after them And that's not just in terms of COVID, right? So it's not just deciding which COVID patients will live and which ones will die, but which entire categories of patients might not be able to receive care. UNMC is the only hospital within a 200-mile radius that can provide care for very, very advanced traumas, for advanced strokes, for heart failures that require mechanical support, for organ transplant recipients, that's it. Like other cities like Boston and Chicago might have more than one hospital that can deal with that. But in this area, that's it. So if that hospital is inundated with COVID-19, then a lot of other people who might need in urgent and intensive medical care are simply not going to be able to get it. That's the disaster we are looking at.
2: Ed Young, science writer for The Atlantic. His latest articles are Hospitals know what's coming, and the other is no one is listening to us. It details preparations that some hospitals are making as they prepare for a surge, those that are already inundated, and also it talks about what frontline health workers are facing. I invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your questions for Ed Young? What are your reactions to the things that he is saying and reported on? Are you somebody who works in the health system with COVID-19 patients? Tell us what you're facing. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Have you started doing anything differently in response to the news of this latest surge here in California? What are you doing to help ensure that we flatten the curve, because as young as you were saying in your piece, you know, when hospitals are full, that means everybody waits, regardless, and that is just part of it, including the fact that people who have other types of healthcare needs might not get what they need. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. <laughs> You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're with Atlantic science writer Ed Young, who has covered the pandemic extensively and has recently been talking with hospital chiefs and frontline workers about what they're going through. And you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Ed Young, one of the things I was really struck by that you wrote in one of your pieces is that the U.S. has created a situation in which hospitals could not possibly succeed. What do you mean by this?
3: Um, So... The US has traditionally invested in healthcare at the very end point. So, just treating people who are already sick and end up in hospitals. And it's got this very weird system of um, private employer tied insurance. Um, what it, has, what it hasn't what it has done is invested in stopping people from getting sick in the first place, and that is the province of public health. Um, people who are um, trying to reduce the spread of infections in a community before sick people end up in the hospital. We have seen the consequences of chronic underfunding of public health this year, as the US, despite its wealth and resources, has utterly failed to roll out the kind of testing and tracing programs that other countries with fewer resources have been able to manage. And so floods of sick people enter the hospital and that flood has become um, even greater than it might have otherwise been because of incredible incompetence and negligence from the Trump administration since the start of this year and Trump's repeated downplaying of this crisis and his inability to come up with a coordinated, sensible federal strategy to contain the virus that other countries have contained more than once. The fault also lies with um, state governors. many of whom have followed suit and have failed to put in the kinds of measures that would control the virus. So even now, for example, we see restaurants and bars and gyms being fully open, even as cases start to mount. These kinds of indoor spaces make it incredibly easy for um, the coronavirus to spread among people who spend a lot of time together, talking without masks, interacting um, you know, in large, dense numbers. And so all of this means that the virus is spreading. It's spreading very, very easily. This third surge is greater than either of the previous two. And no hospital, no matter how well prepared, even places like UNMC, can compensate when um, for a uh, Everything else failing. If a, if your if the hospital is going to be your only shield against a pandemic, that shield will buckle, and we are seeing that happening right now. Healthcare workers have had the full responsibility of COVID nineteen punted onto them from this incompetent administration, from incompetent governors, and from um, people. People like just everyday people who aren't doing their part, who aren't staying in, who aren't um, staying away from indoor spaces with people outside their household who aren't wearing masks. And this is what's happening that all of the all of that failure to take responsibility has shunted responsibility onto doctors and nurses who are now crumpling under that pressure.
2: Well, let me go to caller David in San Jose. Hi, David.
0: Hi, how's it going? Thank you for having me.
2: Sure. Go right ahead.
0: So uh, first I wanted to uh, say that um, uh, Ed Young's uh, verbal description of the uh, COVID ICU patient was pretty accurate, pretty well uh, put, and I think it uh, paints a good picture of really what goes on in the ICU. Uh, These patients, you know, the word intensive is not being used lightly. Uh, It's very labor intensive, uh, and it's very time intensive for the nurses and the physicians, um, I'm a physician in San Jose and I only work in the hospital and I take care of COVID patients. And, um, you know, uh, usually in my job I deal with diseases like heart failure, pneumonia, uh, various infections, various kidney problems, liver problems, and so forth. And, you know, some of them are related to poor health style and poor choices over someone's whole lifespan, but I'm getting pretty fed up with, people's uh, disregard for basic recommendations, for basic precautions that's making my personal life and my family's life at risk. And I you know, go in and I take care of these patients and I do the best I can, but it's um, uh, irritating and I'm getting fed up with the behavior of many Americans that yeah. either directly impacts them or, or impacts someone else who is the kind of victim Of their poor behavior, landing them in my hospital.
2: David, thanks for sharing that. You know, this description of being fed up, is this something you've ever felt before?
0: No, no, this is the first time. You know, I mean, um, I I, I personally have never even seen someone die of influenza. Um, I've had a lot of influenza cases, and obviously when this whole thing first started, I saw people dying quickly. So, um, you know, no, I, I've never felt this way, and it wasn't probably until August where I started to get really irritated uh, at the behavior, because it was obviously directly, as I said, it, it making my life harder at work and making my life risky at home.
2: David, th- thank you so much for the work that you do and for, for sharing that. I mean, Ed Young, as you hear what David is saying, it, it reminds me so much of some of the things that you were hearing and reporting on in your piece, especially mm-hmm. the one about how health workers don't feel listened to.
3: Yeah. Um, what what David is saying is um certainly universal among all the health work, healthcare workers I have spoken to. Just this intense frustration at seeing um what America writ large is doing and how that contrasts with what they're seeing in their ICUs. So you know take the folks in in Nebraska who I talked to can you imagine what it's like spending a 12-hour shift in an ICU Watching multiple patients die on you and having to console their families who aren't allowed to go up in their rooms to see their dying loved ones, uh, to to sit at the bedside of a stranger just so that they don't have to die alone, and then to drive home past, um, you know, packed restaurants, uh, parking lots full of cars, people having parties. and they it's not just the frustration of thinking, it's not just the disconnect of seeing people taking extreme risks um, and the consequences of those risks, but knowing that COVID works slowly and has this time lag. So it takes several days for risky behaviour and infections to lead to symptoms, and then a long time more for those symptoms to lead to hospitalisation. So if you look at those graphs of cases and hospitalizations, there's a 12-day gap between the rises, So people who are, you know, these doctors and nurses who are driving home past all these people who are not wearing masks and are partying outdoors, they know that those people are going to be showing up in their hospital in about two weeks' time. And they know that they are already incapable of dealing with many more patients than the ones they already have. So think about, you know, just take Nebraska as an example. Actually, just take the whole country. In the last 12 days, I told you there's a 12-day gap between cases and hospitalizations. In the last 12 days, probably been about 1.5 million infections documented in the in the US. So that represents a surge of people who are going to slam into bele- hospitals over the next 12 days over the Thanksgiving period. And Thanksgiving is going to make it even worse because people are travelling to see their families. So... I I just don't know what to tell you. When, when people are saying to me that they are frustrated, that they are, you know, at the end of their rope, that they are looking at a healthcare system that's breaking, they're not exaggerating. They know what's coming.
2: Adam writes, how can Mike Pence tell us things aren't that bad and everyone is getting what they need? Let me go to Lewis in Saratoga. Hi, Lewis.
4: Um, I just wanted to say that if you look at the generalized course of the administration's plan, from the very beginning, we're getting reports saying that blue states are getting hit first and getting hit hardest because it only affects people in close proximities. So just let it burn through there when you get other plans talking about how, oh, let's wait for herd immunity to take over so that millions and millions of Americans die. The cruelty with this the, this administration, the cruelty is the point. We should have had a federal plan. We should have, like our speaker is saying, is talking about this. Our our whole healthcare system is uh, exposed for its weaknesses and its its cruelty in a way. And I'm not deriding the physicians and wonderful healthcare workers, but you know, the pay to play insurance and just capitalism's rot in our system. So. Uh, hopefully I wasn't rambling, but thank you. It's been a wonderful topic.
2: Louis, thanks for sharing how you feel. I'm sure there are people who have that same feeling of, of essentially injustice, and he's describing as cruelty. You, Ed, have described the Trump administration, or at least the fact that they'd never mounted a serious effort to stop it, as you said, as gross incompetence or deliberate strategy. Do you think there's some truth to what Louis is saying?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, um, you know, I I think there is two things um, at play in Lewis's comments um, that that are both correct. One is that absolutely this um, administration bears a huge amount of responsibility for the tragedy that has befallen the Americans this year. Um, You know, as, as I've said, whether it's either because of its incompetence or because of this deliberate strategy to pursue herd immunity, it has allowed this virus that, I remind you, other countries have not only controlled but controlled twice. They've allowed it to run riot through America and to spread among prisons, um, among nursing homes, um, among meatpacking plants, and created a wave of patients that are now pummeling hospitals. Some argue that this virus is uncontrollable, that you can't stop a rapid, a highly contagious virus. Those people are talking nonsense because, as I've said again and again, other countries have done it right. And the playbook that we had was clear. It was clear from the spring, certainly by the early summer, all of the things we needed to do, testing, contact tracing, um, safe spaces for people to isolate, um, social support so that businesses that had to shut down stayed afloat, um, paid sick leave so that workers um, who work, um, uh, poorer workers who work hourly jobs didn't have to risk their livelihoods for their lives. All of that was clear. And almost none of that was done. There's Lewis also notes that, there are weaknesses here that precede the Trump administration. Um, in many ways, the virus has uncovered so much that's rotten and festering at the heart of American societies, so and not just the underfunding of public health um, and the stretched nature of hospitals, but to the pat nature of our prisons, the, um, the, the under-resourced uh, um uh, nursing home and long-term care facilities, the long-standing um, inequalities um, and uh, racial injustices that have meant that um, Black, Latino, uh, and Indigenous communities have been so disproportionately hit by this virus. Uh, you know, just a few days ago, uh, or maybe even yesterday, the New York Times published this editorial about how um, what's happening in our prisons is a moral and public health failure. We just looked at the numbers this morning. Half of US states have had more COVID-infected prisoners than New Zealand has a COVID-infected people. Four individual prisons have each had more COVID cases than all of New Zealand. 18 prisons have had more cases than all of Vietnam. That is absurd, and it speaks to just one of many, many gross inequities that I think America has come to accept. Yes. And, you know, the the horror now is that maybe COVID-19, all of this tragedy that we're talking about, becomes yet another thing and another unacceptable thing that the nation comes to accept.
2: And also, you know, before COVID came in large numbers to the U.S., we were already interviewing people who had worked in the prison system who were saying, who foresaw that the prisons would be A place where you would have this kind of an outbreak at this kind of scale. And I think part of what I hear and what you're describing, Ed, and the frustration that you're talking about is that this was predictable and as such preventable.
3: Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I wrote a piece um, in August uh, for The Atlantic called uh, How the Pandemic Defeated America. And it lays out all of these problems. You know, no, I, I am not the first person to talk about the underfunding of public health uh, or the r- ridiculousness of America's packed carceral state or it's, you know, it's the stretch nature of its hospitals. And all of these problems are coming to roost right now. Um, you know, the, the, the pandemic has... You know, came into this country, found a slew of inequities to tear apart and then properly tore them apart. I mean, look, think about the hospital situation, which we spent most of the segment talk, um, discussing. In the fact that um, a lot of hospitals don't have enough nurses isn't just a factor of the intense nature of caring for a COVID patient. It's also because a lot of hospitals just before were stretched thin, which were, were already um, were, had a shortage of um, of good nurses. Um, uh, already, you know, weren't investing enough in pandemic preparations, in supplies. Now you know, I focused on the University of Nebraska Medical Center to show you that even despite those preparations, um, a hospital cannot compensate for an unchecked pandemic if no one else is doing their part. But, you know, many, many places didn't even have that baseline to begin with, which is why we are in this predicament that we are in now.
2: Let me go to Amar in San Francisco. Hi, Amar.
0: Yeah, hi. Um, I'm calling about just how they, when we talk about survival rate, 99%, but 1% of dying is a population of three and a half million people. And people talk about percentage as small, but they're not thinking as to how many people behind that 1% is three and a half million people. If we go by the population and the survival rate, it just doesn't make sense. And we need to take a precaution and take the number serious. That
2: Thank might- you, and uh, Amar, I I know that he Ed Young is talking about um, you know the the survival rate and what we've heard a lot about, which is the low death rate in the United States. But can you just tell us how much we've actually learned at this point that does work in our favor, but also how we should really be understanding the death rate here? Yeah,
3: um, yeah I think the the. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, Amar makes a really solid point, and and I would add um, two things to that. Um, the first is that people really, people okay, so people get this really wrong. The death rate is not an immutable property of the virus. Okay, the death rate is also a factor of the healthcare that people are getting. So yes, the fatality rate has fallen over the year. But that's because doctors have got better and more confident at treating people who have COVID-19. They have learned, they have gained experience on the job. That uh, that experience and that knowledge is going to do a fat lot of good if those doctors and nurses are themselves dead or exhausted or cannot provide the type of care that they have learned how to provide. And if that's the case, and we are seeing that happening in different parts of the country, then those death rates are going to go up. There is absolutely no reason to expect that lowered death rates over the year are going to stay low because they don't automatically happen. They happen because of healthcare workers, and those healthcare workers are exhausted the second point i would make is that there are not just two outcomes here death or survival and we know i know because i've reported on this extensively that thousands tens of thousands perhaps hundreds of thousands of covid 19 patients still have long-term symptoms that last for months after their initial diagnosis they're called long haulers they have spent months you know, a lot of them have been infected, have been um, dealing with symptoms since March, rolling relentless waves of symptoms that aren't severe enough to send them to an ICU, but are debilitating them, that are causing um, huge problems for them in their lives. And that's a thing that we still need to be talking about when we factor in risk.
2: And we'll be talking more with Ed Young after the break, science writer for The Atlantic. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest coronavirus surge with Ed Yong, science writer for The Atlantic. His latest articles look at what ha- what hospitals and frontline health workers are facing in the surge and how they're preparing. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are you doing to help flatten the curve in this latest COVID surge? Do you work in the health system with COVID-19 patients? Tell us what you're facing. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Joining me now is Rick Rawson, President of Adventist Health and Rideout in Marysville, California, near Yuba City. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: So Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
2: Rick Rawson, we know that uh, Adventist Health was in the news Recently, because of concerns about running low on ICU beds, surges in COVID patients, can you tell us what the situation is right now?
5: Yeah, so we serve a a Sutter and Yuba County up in Northern California. We have a 221-bed hospital, uh, 24 ICU beds. Um, We have an intermediate care unit of 12 beds, uh, sort of a step-down unit. But we began to see a rapid rise in cases in our community. There was uh, some large gatherings that resulted in significant outbreaks. I think one wedding produced, you know, 45 cases, which I think over the next week probably spread into the hundreds. Um, so for a, for a relatively small community, this uh, creates a challenge for us. In addition, you know, we run fairly full occupancy, even without uh, COVID patients. Two weeks ago, we had 30 patients in our emergency department waiting for beds. beds. We only had two uh, COVID patients uh, in the hospital Um, because Because of this outbreak, uh, we started raising the alarm. We were up to 20 last Thursday, and I think we're at 33 or 34 as of this morning, and they're still coming in fairly rapidly.
2: Oh, no. Uh, so, the, other, yeah. the other
5: issue we've had is, uh, is outbreaks in nursing homes, which has always been our nightmare scenario ever since we did a uh, surge planning originally, and so we're doing the best we can to uh, prepare to manage our capacity and to take care for patients as they come in.
2: But even with all those preparations, as we were just discussing, you know, on this program today, I mean, people are going to have to wait. People are not necessarily going to get the care when they need it, when they come in, correct?
5: Well, that's a, con- that's a concern. You know, as of today, we're doing okay, uh, but that could change in 12 hours. Um, you know, as your previous guest was pointing out, staffing is the issue uh, back in March and April when we basically put our whole business on hold in order to develop capacity you know we We have a surge plan that could probably double the number of beds uh, that we have. The problem is uh staff uh right now, we have sixty one of our staff members out either in
4: quarantine or
5: sick. Um, because they live in the community where this is happening. And um, that's a huge, uh, huge hit. You know, we have about uh, 2,300 employees. But when that hits our caregiving capacity, uh, that has a direct impact. So even if we could surge to additional beds, we don't have staff for them. Last summer when we saw a surge, uh, we were able to bring in staff from the Midwest and South and other areas through travel nurse programs. But because of the nationwide surge right now, everyone's needed where they're at. And, uh, getting uh, travel nurses to from other parts of the country uh, is a very limited option right now.
2: Well, Rick Ross, and this listener writes, beyond observing safety protocols, how can regular civilians help support healthcare care workers and our local hospitals? What would you say to this listener?
5: Well, that's what, what we tried very hard to do when we saw this going, is realizing that You know, what we're trying to deal with, with
4: capacity in the
5: hospital, is the back end. What we can do is in the next five minutes, the next day, the next three days as we come up on Thanksgiving, everybody can make choices uh, to reduce the spread, reduce transmission, and manage the risk in the community. So masking, social distancing, limiting gatherings, Uh, deferring maybe what we would have liked to do for Thanksgiving. Uh, I think all those are very, very important things that every single person has the agency to do and make a difference, and that's what we're trying to do is recognize that what we have on the healthcare capacity side is really catching you the back end. Uh, On the front end, every single person in our community has an opportunity to help.
2: Rick Rawson, president of Adventist Health and Rideout in Marysville, California. Thanks so much for calling us. Thank you. And related, related to that, this listener writes, my parents live on the East Coast. We collectively decided to cancel holiday get-togethers until the spring or summer. It's sad, but long-term thinking is more important. Let me go next to Javenna in Ventura County. Hi, Javenna. Am I saying your name correctly? No, it's Janova. Geneva, thank you so much yeah. uh, for calling in. What's on your mind, Geneva?
1: Well, a lot of things are on my mind, but having to do with what your last uh, speaker just said, if there's everyone has heard about all the things we need to do, and everybody knows what we should do, but nobody is doing it. At least half the population doesn't seem to be doing it. And I'm wondering why aren't there some repercussions for this? Why aren't governors who are saying masking is a must? Why aren't they saying ticket people who aren't wearing them? I see families going down our public bike paths on their bicycles. They're not on public bike paths. They're on public walkways and they're, they've got their kids and nobody's wearing a mask. And I mean, there's elderly people going by. I happen to be one of them and um, they don't, consider putting on a mask or giving you six feet. It's just crazy. We need something to do to the people who are not following instructions.
2: Janava, let me put that to Ed Young. I mean, do you think we need to do some more punitive things here in this country?
3: I actually disagree with that. I can see where people, why people think that, but I think there is a very long history that shows that punitive measures don't work for public health. Like To actually do the things that we need to do to control this pandemic, you need trust more than anything else. Like People need to be able, people need to trust that they can go for, for testing, they need to trust vaccines that are coming, they need to t- trust contact tracers that are calling them, and you erode trust when you go to a punitive mindset, I think what we need are policies that make it easier for people to do the right things. So a lot of governors have um, said to people, I urge you to wear masks or to distance or, or whatever. And those pleas are completely nullified by their policies, which allow people to gather in restaurants and to, you know, and and, uh, and to not wear masks and so on. I don't think punishment is the thing. I think you actually need to just have strong policies in the first place. And many places throughout the U.S. do not have that. You know, think think about Nebraska that I that we spent a lot of time talking about Um If Nebraska hits the highest possible tier of restrictions based on the amount of hospitalizations it's receiving, that's still going to mean a lot of open restaurants, open gyms, indoor gatherings of 10 people. That's absurd. Like, the idea that that is the most restrictive thing? If the government is telling people through policies that they can do those things, They will do those things and no amount of punishment or fining or what have you is going to stop them. We need to um, have a, a coordinated federal plan that actually makes it easier for people to do the right thing. And not just like in terms of, you know, don't, just don't think of it in terms of like selfishness or selflessness. Some people don't have the choice to do these things because they live in poorer communities, because they need to go to work for all kinds of other reasons. This is why I've talked about the importance of social interventions, things like paid sick leave, hazard pay, um, supporting businesses that might need to close because they are just too risky, like restaurants and bars.
2: Well, Monica tweets, my family has been isolating and wearing masks when we leave the house since March. We are terribly frustrated by those who are privileged and can isolate. But choose not to, the selfishness on display, is deeply troubling. Hunter writes, it's amazing to me a five-cent mask could prevent billions in healthcare care costs. The hubris is unbelievable. And this listener writes, public health should never have been so sorely underfunded. It's inconceivable that the U.S. has allowed COVID-19 to run rampant. Everyone must listen up and take responsibility. Let me go to Linda in Palo Alto. Hi, Linda.
1: Hi. Well, it seems like either stupidity or the lack of discipline. And it starts with childhood. You only have to see the roads to see how much trash is in the last 20 years. It's just proliferated. But my question goes more to this Regeneron product or company that's putting out what apparently the president was given hours after he reported that he had a positive. Is it not being made available? And the other part of that question is once people reach the hospital phase or stage, uh, of the disease, is that beyond the, um, the efficacy or whatever of this Regeneron product, be it whatever?
2: Uh, Linda, thanks. I mean, what can you tell us either about Regeneron and Young, but also just the treatments that are available right now to people who are coming into hospital?
3: Yeah. so um the regeneral product are uh, monoclonal antibodies so that the idea there is that you are um, you know neutralizing the uh, virus before it gets a chance to um, infect further cells now um, I don't believe, and I think this is still true, that there has actually been um, clear data yet. Um, there have been um, announcements and press releases, but like I'm a science journalist, so I just want to see some actual data before weighing in. But, you know, some people are very optimistic about these products um, that they might help to stop the progression of infections from, um, you know, from early stages to uh, being severe enough to warrant hospitalizations. If that is true, then that would be. Um, a bonus that would help to alleviate the burden on the healthcare system but a few things on that there are only limited numbers of doses um of this of this product available um you know as as we've said america runs on this very very bizarre system of employer-based insurance and a lot of the people who have been most vulnerable in this pandemic so far lack in lack um uh, insurance uh, and so there's a massive issue of access to uh, to these drugs. In terms of other drugs, there's really not that much, right? There's there's um, antiviral drugs are not going to be the thing that brings a pandemic under control. So the best drug we have, dexamethasone, does help to reduce mortality, uh, death rates uh, among the most severely ill patients who are on ventilators. But by about 12 percentage points right so that's not a cure that's not going to be a magic panacea that turns every sick patient into you know a healthy one who can then go home antiviral drugs only ever tend to have incremental benefits on top of basic medical care and as we've said basic medical care is really stretched right now because doctors and nurses are so stretched like So much of um, America has this idea that we turn to like the biomedical silver bullet to save us, and that's almost never the case. It's the people who are matter, and the people who get neglected and discarded and left to shoulder the, resp- uh, the responsibility of everyone else's irresponsibility.
2: We're talking with Ed Young, science writer for The Atlantic. We're looking at the latest coronavirus surge with him and also what hospitals and frontline health workers are facing amid this surge. Gary, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Gary writes, what Mr. Young has said on this show is a message which every single American should hear. He's given an emphatic and tangible explanation of the gravity of this pandemic, which is even more dire than I had imagined. You also have a couple of listeners here, Ed, thanking you for your descriptions, which is what I had noted earlier in terms of what actually happens in the ICU. This listener writes, thank you for describing the details of what it means to be hospitalized with COVID. We hear how serious it is, but not the details of what goes on minute to minute. Maybe this will make it difference to some people in how they spend their holidays and what they do day to day. This listener writes, as a practicing physician in California, the concern isn't anything fancy like trained personnel or ICU beds. The death rate is low now because we have everything we need, but if we run out of simple things like gloves, IV fluids, oxygen, or beds, complications and death rates will increase to unimaginable levels. We've also heard, Ed Young, there was a piece in the New York Times about how we now have a lot of ventilators, but few specialists to operate ventilators. We've also heard concerns about shortages and some of the basic things related to PPE. Do you have any update on how hospitals are doing with this? What have they told you about whether they have enough of the basic supplies and the protective equipment?
3: Yeah, so that's one difference from March um, when PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, um, was really in short supply in a lot of places. Um, that's not true to the same extent now. Um, certainly a lot of big hospitals have managed to stock up with a, a reasonable number of supplies. That's not universal, though, and um, a lot of uh, smaller clinics, smaller hospitals, rural hospitals, long-term healthcare facilities are still Drastically short of the protective equipment they need to care for their patients and themselves. Um, you know, there's a great organization called Get Us PPE um, that has, you know, still, I believe, tens of thousands of requests um uh you know for for uh for these kinds of basic things, um gloves, gowns, masks. And you know, even the places that have enough PPE, there's you, that only does you so much good when you just don't have enough people. Um, you know, we we heard this from one of the um, previous callers that the issue isn't isn't beds. Like a hospital bed might as well be a hotel bed if it doesn't have a dedicated trained nurse who has the time to care for the patient in it. And that's what we're losing right now, either because of sickness or just because of the cumulative trauma, people going on strike, people can't take, we just can't take it anymore. We're losing the healthcare workforce. And I want everyone to realise that we're talking about the, the next couple of weeks as being really bad. But even after this surge crests, even after Thanksgiving and Christmas go past and vaccines start rolling out, The consequences of this period right now on healthcare workers is going to continue for months because those people, after the COVID surge subsides, will still have to do catch up work on all the elective surgeries that was postponed from from this point in time, and all the patients with heart problems and cancers who delayed treatment because they couldn't go into hospital right now and will end up being much sicker in January and February. So we are not only stressing out our healthcare workers to breaking point right now, but we're going to be causing them grief for well into 2021, while the rest of us start benefiting from things like vaccines and a new administration, which is why our choices right now, not like just generically now, but like literally in the next few hours and days are going to make a huge difference to the people who are supposed to save our lives.
2: Jim writes, the biggest problem is that the American public, myself included, have no idea how serious things are in ICUs across the country. Ed Young's graphic description of what nurses have to deal with was truly eye-opening and shocking. We urgently need more shows like this. We just have a minute left, Ed, but you mentioned vaccines. And I wonder how much the vaccine news, what role, if anything, it's playing right now among the hospital workers, the, the healthcare system, the people that you're talking with. I mean, is this something that is like, great, but we can't even think about that right now? Or is it fundamentally making them think about, you know, how to prepare for, for this and, and restructure in any way?
3: I think more the former. Um I think it's hope it is it is undoubtedly hope. The light at the end of the tunnel has never been brighter, but the tunnel has never been darker. And the healthcare workers know this. They know that um the pandemic end game is upon us, but that they still have to get through the next couple of months. They see the, you know, what what I've talked about, the wave of hospitalizations that are going to happen even if no even if zero further americans get infected from this day forward there's still going to be a massive backlog that is going to slam into hospitals regardless and that's going to happen regardless of what happens with the vaccine in the future so my last word to your listeners think of it this way our decisions right now will decide how many Americans are still alive to get a vaccine next year and how many health workers are broken in the process.
2: A sobering last word. Ed Yong, thank you. Science writer for The Atlantic. Thanks, Polly Stryker, for this segment. Thanks, listeners, for listening. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum
1: are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.